0: Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns and in this episode, my guest, Dr Stuart Lorimer, is one of the psychiatrists who make up the consulting team at Britain's largest clinic working with people who need help with their gender identity issues. Before we start, I want to explain that this could never be an official interview about the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic where Stuart works. If I wanted one of those, then I'd have ended up speaking to a press officer and that would be incredibly dull and formal. No, this was intended to be an altogether more personal interview, a chance to talk to someone I already know quite well as a friend about his experiences and thoughts on a much maligned corner of medicine. It's intriguing enough why people specialise in psychiatry, let alone a niche which even some psychiatrists sneer at. So the obvious place to start our interview was to ask Stuart how he came to be where he is.
1: Well, I suppose first off, I should go with what interested me in medicine as a career. Um, You hear about people who sort of have wanted to be a doctor since they were fetal. Uh, I'm not one of those. I... It was sort of a bit directionless when I sat my, my hires, which are the sort of um, uh, Scottish equivalents. And um, I had the grades, and I quite liked biology, um, biology and English. And uh, I I went into medicine, and um, I found that I quite liked it. But when we first started learning psychiatry, I think that was the first time I thought, this is for me, this is something that I really like. It's something I'm good at. There was just something uh, attractive about the amount of time that you had to, to sit with people and, and sort of get under the skin and find out what made them tick.
0: And what was it that drew you in particular to be interested in gender identity issues and trans people?
1: Um, I suppose there's, there's two answers to this, really. One is that I came down to London to do my specialist registrar, my pre-consultant training in 2001, and one of the, the features of uh, the SPR training is that you have an afternoon, um, one session a week, to do whatever you like, to, to study whatever you like. And I was, I was certain that I wanted to do something that I was genuinely interested in, that you could only do in London. Um, I had, as a general adult psychiatrist in a community mental health team, um, assessed several trans women for going to, to Charing Cross, and um, I thought they were nice Um, I wonder what happens at Charing Cross so it was curiosity really I phoned them up out of the blue I spoke to uh, Dr James Barrett who was very happy to have me along there so I went along and I started sitting in on uh, sessions with various of the, uh, the, the psychiatrists there I just found I liked it I wanted to do more of it so I gradually started seeing my own patient group and um the rest is history
0: Were you aware of the, the the clinic's reputation at that time?
1: Naively no I think when I assessed these uh, and I think there were, there were probably about three trans women I saw in total who were then being referred on to, to Charing Cross um, I think one of them said, one of them sort of expressed some sort of apprehension which I, I didn't really think any more of I thought well I would be apprehensive if I were following this route I think it was, when I'd had a patient caseload of my own there for a while, I made the mistake of Googling my name and uh, it came up. Somebody had written a blog about me and they'd they'd had an okay time with me, but they'd written some fairly negative stuff about the clinic as a whole. So I Googled the clinic and um, it wasn't all negative, but there was an awful lot of, of, I think, sort of, fear and, and negativity and I found that really hard to square with my own experience, which had been that the people I, I, I was working with were, were quite dedicated, were working in a in a tiny subspecialty, and seemed to be doing the best that they could. So it was very strange. It was a bit like um I don't know if you've seen that Mitchell and Webb sketch where they realize that that where the Nazis realize that they're the bad guys. Um <laughs> That sounds a really bad analogy, but I did. I did suddenly think, "Am I working on the Death Star? Am I on the wrong side?" Um, and I think it took me quite a while to work out the, the public, the, the sort of public um, perception.
0: And I mean, maybe listeners who aren't aware of the long history of Charing Cross because it's been running several decades. Um, do you know how and when it started up and who created the clinic?
1: Um, I've just been talking about this in a presentation this afternoon. It started up in uh, 1966. I think that was John Randall at the time. Um, so yes, it's been going a long time, longer than me.
0: Um, just, and just, I don't want to sort of linger on the, the, the criticisms t- too long. We'll come on to the positive stuff in a moment. But many criticisms have been levelled at the, the clinic over the years. Um, so, what do you think are the main complaints that people have raised? And then perhaps we can go on to talk about you know, how you, you address those.
1: Um, okay, I think it was seen as being fairly inflexible. I, and this, this is actually something I remember. I remember the interview with Julia Grant mm-hmm. um, on the, uh, was it called George to Julia, the documentary? Um, I
0: think the documentary was called A Change of Sex. It was 1981,
1: okay. wasn't it? Yes, and, and, uh, when I was eleven. I remember being quite fascinated by this and um, particularly remember the Doctor's attitude being very sort of paternalistic and um, I think that's cast quite a long shadow and I think a lot of the criticism is of um, or what that time was of paternalism Um, of a a particularly sort of old school branch of medicine um, and a kind of inflexibility I I think there were also complaints of um, people being turned away for for turning up late Um, there was the issue of you have to wear a skirt you have to conform to a a cliched or stereotypical view of femininity and as I say I found this quite hard to square with what I was doing at that point and, and what my colleagues seemed to be doing
0: so you're saying all all those kind of examples that you you've listed are are things of the past?
1: I think they are. Um, I cannot say for sure that these were all in the past because obviously I saw the John Randall interview um, with with Julia Grant, and that is is sort of very much you, know, you being a naughty girl, um, and that tone I think was very unfortunate. I well, supp-
0: he discharged her, didn't he?
1: I think he did. I felt slightly sorry for him on one level because I think he was ambushed by the presence of television cameras. But it was, it, as I say, it cast a long shadow. Um, I do think that is of the past. I can understand that it remains in people's memories.
0: Okay, so let's, let's move into the present then. Sa- sell-, <laughs> sell us the modern day Charing Cross. What can people expect when, when, they, when they come to your clinic?
1: i I think people can expect to f- to find a flexible service, a welcoming service, a user friendly service um, I th- think a certain amount of difference is the fact that um we're just nicer to people um, I get the impression that there was an awful lot of stick and not much carrot in the past and i think things have changed in that um perhaps it's to do with training at a different uh, training in medicine at a different time but i think there's a more um patient-centered approach unfortunately i'm I'm still not still too old school to say client-centered approach i haven't quite evolved into that but i think there's a patient-centered approach and i think we i think we take much more account of individuals and i think I Certainly compared with accounts of the past, it seems much more tailored to, to, to people, individual people.
0: Have you seen a, dro- a drop in the number of complaints?
1: Yes. Um, as I was saying in the presentation this afternoon, I think uh, a large amount of that is due to um, administration changes. I think, for example, when the change in the appointment system was made, that, that made a big difference. Um, appointments being given out... Uh, at the end of of seeing the doctor rather than the sort of angst with missed letters in the past Um, I think there have been other changes like uh, the fact that the amount of time having lived in role before coming to the clinic was taken into account, I think that happened just shortly before I joined and I think that obviously led to people being a bit happier Um, I think there's not the same there isn't the same sort of perception that you're living as the gender in which you see yourself began at the doors of the clinic, I think we take account of the fact that people have lives outside and I think that's led to, to people being generally happier with the service
0: Now, just to change the subject as you know, that there's, there's long been fierce international debate over whether gender variants should, should even have a mental illness label, or even a medical label at all. What's your view on that?
1: Um... Well, I suppose the slighty answer is that um, gender variance uh, isn't any kind of um, medical term. Gender variance to me just seems to be um, a variant in, in gender as um, variant in sexuality. Um, and one wouldn't consider a homosexual or bisexual person to be um, uh, disordered. Um, I think that's probably not what you're asking me though, is it?
0: No, I mean, you're aware that there is this contention over the fact that the condition is listed in the... or one of the conditions that's part of the spectrum is listed in the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and the International Classification of Diseases. And stigma goes with any form of mental illness classification. And I think that gives, a, gives a, lot of, a lot of issues. Would it help if I explain perhaps where I think we need to come from which okay. is an understanding that there is a, i think there is a role for mental health professionals in the huge uh, transitional process that that trans people need to go through, um, just as that you know, counsellors have roles in helping people deal with other aspects of life. This is a particularly you know, extreme mm. variation on that. That doesn't make what we're talking about a mental illness. It just means no. that it's a that there's something going on that needs your skills to to help people through that.
1: Yes, um, I think my my gut feeling. Um, is that uh, those individuals who come to us are not intrinsically disordered um, but in the same way as you know and obviously I have personal experience of this being gay leads to uh, or makes you more vulnerable to life stresses um, you're more likely to have a history of depression you're more likely to have anxiety symptoms there's more likely to be um, histories of alcohol drug abuse in your past um, I think that people who are unhappy with a mismatch between their physical and their psychological sex um are more prone to uh to becoming unwell in other ways um and i think i think are more vulnerable to these sorts of things um i think to me that's where the disorder lies um i think there are other debates to do with healthcare systems and to do with accessing healthcare but that's that's my gut feeling on the matter I guess.
0: Now the other thing that I think that engages people's minds a lot is that there's, there's also an equally fierce debate about the protocols for engagement and especially what people refer to as, as the role of gatekeeper that conflict of roles you have between counselling people and standing between them and the, uh, the treatments that they, they identify that they desire.
1: Yes. Um, I suppose I would say that anyone who works in the NHS is by definition a gatekeeper of some sort. Mm -hmm. At least in that uh, one is gatekeeping resources. There are finite resources, Mm -hmm. there is probably an infinite demand um, placed upon those resources. So at some point there is going to be rationing, um, and one could argue that assessment is a form of gatekeeping. but this
0: has been very much more specific hasn't it
1: yes yeah i think that's a fair point um you're talking about the real life experience Mm. i think there is value in the real life experience i think there is now a bit more flexibility around exactly where that stands in the care of of uh gender dysphoric individuals um but i do think that certainly with the diverse uh, caseload that, that we see at the clinic there has to be some kind of mechanism for establishing that people can live in the world rather than in their heads mm-hmm. um, I think there is an awful lot of emphasis placed on uh, the physical elements of transition and I think the social elements tend to be under so i suppose i'm I'm a proponent of the real life experience in that sense. I think there is elasticity and there is flexibility around exactly how one one uses it or how one one approaches
0: it isn't that the 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 crux actually as to who the real life experience is for we've Mm. seen that change in language from real life test which indicated it was something to be passed to real life experience which sort of makes it much more equitable and indicates that it's something for the patient to, to to draw value from
1: yeah yes i i agree with all of that um I think it's also, uh, it, it's about the experience of living in society. It's about the experience of working out if you can happily, comfortably live a functioning existence um, as, a member of, as a member of society in what is a bi-gendered culture essentially. It's about what you're fit with with the world around you
0: last on my hit list of, of I think the, the issues we'll move on again uh, the, the other thing I think that people get very wound up about on it is, is this issue about the, the ordering of, of, of treatments, you know, whether hormones have to come before or rather you know, where whether real life experience comes before hormones, comes before surgery uh, or you, know, you do it because Charing Cross has a particular way of doing this can you explain what is your rationale for the particular approach that you recommend and and is it absolutely rigid
1: um well it's not rigid it's evolving um continually it has changed since i was at the clinic and it's something that's constantly reviewed um I suppose the rationale is that it, it all comes down to reversibility and how one defines reversibility. I, uh, I've heard the arguments that the uh, so social changes are irreversible and I have a certain amount of sympathy for that. Um, there's also the medical model arguments that uh, medical changes become irreversible depending on the hormone. Um, and I suppose this uh, this is something to which a lot of doctors subs- uh, subscribe because the, the Hippocratic Oath states do no harm, or first do no harm so there is there is a, there is a certain attraction to the, the medical model there too um, I know that in the past um, Charing Cross stuck fairly rigidly to the idea that in order to be given any kind of hormonal um, assistance, one had to uh, be living I think for three months um, in one's chosen uh, gender role acquired, uh, acquired gender and I think that's not the case. I think there is elasticity around that at the moment, um, and I think you have to unpack hormones. Um, for example, we tend to prescribe antiandrogens a lot earlier. Finasteride is particularly helpful for individuals who think that they may be transitioning at some point, um, but not for a while, but they are worried about losing their hair. Um, finasteride is essentially a way of buying time. Um, there is fairly persuasive advice from the Endocrinological Society, um, he says, not being an endocrinologist um, that GNRH analogues um, such as Solidex, may be of use in those situations too I think the bottom line is that uh, we do consider every situation differently um, and that everyone is taken on, on, on his or her own merit um, I think it is a, lot, a much more tailored system than perhaps it used to be in the past
0: It, it sounds like you're learning as you go along as, as well
1: well I think one has to um I think the the exceptions to to the rule inform the rule and and change it. Are,
0: are there lessons there to be drawn by some of the debate that's that's taking place around about uh, adolescent treatment?
1: Oh no you see I stay entirely out of this. Um I have the luxury of not having an opinion on this because I work in an exclusively adult service. Um
0: but I I'm, I'm going to press you though because because I know you are. <laughs> What? Well, in that case, you can save me asking the question.
1: <laughs> um, I don't like to tread on professional toes here. I suppose it's easy for me, coming from the adult side, to see that when we have individuals come to us from the Tavistock and Portman, they generally seem very sorted, very stable, and uh, they've usually been through X amount of psychotherapy, the decision for me is fairly straightforward. I can usually tell that they, they need to be commenced on hormonal treatment, sort of ASAP. It would be easy for me to extrapolate from that that, yes, there is a strong case for treating people much younger, but I don't work in that service. I'm not, I'm not fully cognizant of all the issues around that.
0: Okay, I, I'm, and I'm going to let you off as far as that is concerned, because that wasn't really the question I was asking, but it, you gave me a much more interesting answer. Um, The question, I think, was really about the idea that uh, a a logical, and you touched upon it before, a logical part of of treatment perhaps isn't to charge headlong necessarily into hormones, but actually to examine uh, the use of uh, anti-antigens or or hormone blockers, which, in some sense, deliver the thing that the patient is actually looking for and and can... (coughs) potentially be diagnostic as well without actually that, that loaded argument yes, about them being yeah. irreversible
1: Yes I think uh, I wouldn't get into that whole issue of um, diagnostic trials of hormones because I think it's incredibly problematic to claim that uh, I'm, uh, responding or not responding to a particular medication is diagnostic of a particular um, condition but um, uh, but but yes, I think um, you can probably make more of a case in that regard for something uh, a GnRH analog, such as um, Zoladex, that reverses um, or that that if effectively gets gets rid of testosterone. And I'm thinking particularly of male to female transitioners, um, because as we, uh, as our endocrinologist, Dr. Seal would tell you, um, estrogen is euphoric. Um, And I think that's a confounder. Oestrogen tends to improve a whole load of conditions. Um, People quite like oestrogen. It works well in uh, anxiety as a really, really novel treatment for um, depression. Um, But my point is that I think there there are problems with saying that if someone doesn't like oestrogen, then they are not transsexual. Um, I think it's probably a more telling aspect of the assessment if someone goes on a GnRH analogue um and doesn't like it
0: let's let's move on let's. Back, to, <laughs> back to you now since you were appointed as a consultant one of the things you've been tasked to do personally has been to talk to stakeholders you know the patient groups and to build better relationships for the service so how's that going
1: i think it's going well um, there certainly seems to be incredibly good feedback people seem hugely appreciative and I think there has been really a great hunger for that among the trans community that was certainly the impression that uh, I got at the uh, Greater London Authority panel was it two years ago three years ago um, which was my my first really experience of exposure to the, uh, the the trans community, and I was absolutely terrified. Um, I thought I would be taken to pieces. Um, I was t- t- gently taken to pieces, but the overwhelming impression I got was that people were just incredibly grateful that the clinic had a presence and seemed to be reaching out. Um, and I think if that's a mistake of the past i think it's been that actually we do a fairly good job in a lot of areas um, but we're not very good at communicating that to people and i think we've been seen as remote and distant Um, i think since that distance has been closed a little with the presentations that i and dr seal have been giving to um uh to trans groups uh we've just got incredibly good feedback it seems overwhelmingly positive and we're happy that we started to do this
0: now, some of the things that people ask for, of course, are not necessarily the things that you can control because the things that people experience as part of the overall treatment may be the, 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 the policies of their their primary care trust, uh, the, the funding that's available. So do you what, what do you think are the biggest barriers that you face?
1: Um, I'm going to be incredibly... I'm saying incredibly too much, aren't I? I'm going to be very unpopular, potentially, with my colleagues for saying this but my medical colleagues are probably the biggest impediment i think in the past there was a neg- there was a fairly negative response from patient groups but by far the, the most difficult um obstructive phenomenon that we face as a clinic really not just me um is, I think, the attitude that that comes from our medical colleagues um, GPs, other psychiatrists I'm sure you're aware of the, uh, the the study of a thousand doctors that showed that 84% feel that gender services are not somehow not legitimate within the NHS shouldn't be treated, um, lifestyle choice um, you know, a lot of these arguments I'm fairly familiar with um, so that's really what we're up against I think I occasionally still have patients who I get quite frustrated with, but I get a lot more frustrated with uh, GPs who refuse to prescribe because they haven't had the experience, and I think, well, you you gain experience by working in a supervised way. Um, from PCTs who seem ignorant or... At worst, obstructive of of guidelines. Um, I think there is this general attitude amongst um, uh, amongst my medical colleagues that this is somehow seen as as, as something that, that that's not legitimate, that's not deserved, that shouldn't be in the NHS, um, and that that's the biggest obstacle, as I see it.
0: But do you think that that image of uh, of trans people and you know, transsexuality and gender issues is changing among health professionals because uh, otherwise it sounds a pretty uh, dismal picture
1: um I hope so um I really do hope so. I think the uh, legal battles that have been fought and won have helped to a huge extent i think that's that's had a huge bearing, and I think increased visibility can only can only help um, i very very vaguely remember a time in the past when nobody knew anyone who was gay and i think there were all sorts of peculiar mythologies about gay people and then that seemed to change with increased visibility everyone knew someone who was gay and i think the i think the contact demythologized things and made made people friendly or gave gave people a sort of human view of this and I think the same thing will happen um, with trans people generally speaking doctors who have helped someone through their transition experience it as positive experience it as, as, as a good thing I think the um, the negative feelings generally spring from ignorance from not having had contact with, with anyone who's trans
0: No. no. You've mentioned twice your, your your own gay background as well, so that that gives me the. the I'm going on about it. Aren't I? <laughs> no, that gives me the opportunity to just to, to ask you. Actually, do you, do you think that, that that experience and that that knowledge that you've gained um, actually you know, gives you a, an advantage over perhaps other clinicians?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I hesitate to make too much of this um, because I don't think it's a perfect analogy I suppose it's, it's part of the reason why I, I was interested in this field in the first place and I think it's the second one that I didn't quite come to in your question earlier um, is that I uh, I came out in the early 1990s and I had an interest in the sexual in, uh, sexuality politics um, LGBT politics that were big in the 1980s um, and I think I was always intrigued by hearing how trans fitted into that um, I grew up in Scotland, as you can probably guess, and I remember that at every Scottish Pride there was a sort of skirmish outside the women with intent when a trans woman would try to gain entry. And I remember thinking, well, why? what's the issue? Why aren't they allowing them in? And I think that made me curious about this field. Um, to come back to this question, do I feel I, ha- I have an advantage over the other clinicians? I think I have a different frame of reference. I think I have, I'm able to draw analogies with my own experience and that perhaps gives me an insight on one level, I think in terms that, that, in terms of there being commonalities of experience um, but I, I would hesitate to push that too far because I think there are big differences as well
0: Last question, <laughs> do you ever wish you'd chosen a less politically charged branch of care?
1: No actually um I really don't. I I have frustrating times, I have frustrating days, I sometimes feel I'm caught in a hideous pincer action, but no, I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: Dr Stuart Lorimer there, speaking to me about his personal experiences and views of gender treatment. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Join us again soon for another episode on a topic of equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.